God takes this vessel that he has shaped and created and fashioned and holds it up and says, they are mine and I love them with an eternal everlasting love. And here are we thinking of ourselves as shapeless lumps of clay and he says the very opposite. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. We're reading Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 29, excuse me, 28 through 39, and you'll find it on page 1757 of the Pew Bible, page 1757, Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes these words at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers, and those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. On a Friday morning, most of you will know this, each Friday I put out an email to the entire congregation and it goes out to 1,643 recipients. And the whole idea behind Fridays at first is that the first half is supposed to be a little humorous. I usually write it with my tongue firmly in my cheek. And then the latter half tells us about events coming up over the weekend. Are we having a communion Sunday? Who is being baptized? And various events and ministry opportunities coming up. Fridays at first is the one thing I do in the week that generates more emails than any other thing. And this past Friday was no exception, because at the end of Fridays at First last week, I added a PS. 
And now I'm sorry that I did. But it seemed a good idea at the time. Because no sooner had the email gone out than the email started to come in. And the emails were this. I don't understand it. I don't get it. What are you telling us? And this is what the PS at the end of the email said. It said, Paramount Studios have just issued an announcement saying that individual cinema goers will be turned away from viewing the new Russell Crowe movie entitled Noah. And it died flat in the vast majority of the congregation's mind. People were saying, are you recommending the movie? Are you not recommending it? Has church groups bought up all the tickets so individuals can't go? Well, individuals can't go to see Noah because when you go to the ark, you've got to go two by two by two by two by two. <laughs> Choir, what on earth am I going to do with them? Help me, please. Whenever something on Fridays at first seems odd or unbelievable or unreal, it is. <laughs> Read it carefully. Join the dots. Work with me, please. Help me. And the point of that illustration is this. That when we come to Romans chapter 8, we are coming to some of the most profound theological teaching to be found anywhere in the entirety of the scriptures not just the book of romans but across the entirety of the word of god and this morning i need you to concentrate and focus and pay attention and try and join the dots as we come to what is one of the great passages in all of scripture over the last three months, if you've been with us on a regular basis, you will know that back in January, we started at the beginning of the New Testament epistle to the Romans. At times it's been deeply personal. And during those days, some of you have heard me say several times that when we have come face to face with the depravity of humanity, those Sunday mornings were at times dark, and ugly and unsettling and it was not enjoyable to look sin square in the face and if I've said we have at times we are guilty of underestimating the magnitude and power and significance of our own sin you've also heard me balance that out by saying there are other times when we underestimate the magnitude and the power and the significance of the grace and love of God. And Romans chapter 8 is packed tightly with those deep, unfathomable theological principles and truths of the love and grace and mercy of God. And that's where we're going this morning in this passage. So if you have your Bible, look with me please at verse 28, when Paul begins and says, And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that verse alone, I am fairly convinced we could not plummet depths if we stayed here till the Lord came back. And it's a verse that talks of the providence of God and the omniscience of God. 
And if you're sitting there and saying, Richard, I want to follow you, I do want to concentrate, but you have to unpack a little of providence and omniscience for me, well, let me attempt to do that. The providence of God means this. God's unmerited, unconditional, outrageous, intense, far-reaching, profound governing of all things from the greatest to the least by his free, immutable and infallible counsel and will. And in essence it means this, that God orchestrates and engineers every single happening in the entirety of the universe from the greatest to the least. That's the providence of God. And that's why Paul writes, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now please understand why that is exceptionally good news for you this morning. Why is that outrageous and staggering and spectacular and wonderful? And it's for this reason. That he knows you intimately. He knows you deeply, comprehensively. There is nothing in your life that is hidden from him. No deep, dark secret. No recess in your life, a corner that's unexplored. You will never surprise him. There's nothing in your life he doesn't know about already. And he who knows you best loves you the most. Every thought, every desire, every passion, every intent... Every hope, every dream, every disappointment, every sin, every victory, every thought, he knows it intimately. And he still loves us with an everlasting love. That's why it's staggering. And we know that in all things God works for good. And you may well be saying, Richard, hold on a minute. I have great sympathy with what you're saying, but let me just push back a little here. Are you honestly telling me that in everything, everything God works for good? Really? The day I lost my parents in a traffic accident, that was good. My best friend's marriage has fallen apart, that's for good. My next door neighbor has a drug addiction and it's left him emotionally and psychologically debilitated and crippled for the rest of his day, that's good. Richard, I really needed to hear more than that this morning. <laughs> Blessed platitudes and the theological nuances will not help me. I live in the real world away from books and scrolls. Give me something solid, something I can hold on to. 
Are you really telling me that he works for good in these situations? The answer is no. Because what we go through at times does not feel good. It feels unfair. It leaves us bitter and hurt. And our hopes and dreams turn to ash in our hands and fall at our feet. And we are grieving, hurting, disappointed people. That can't be for good. But what Paul is teaching is this. That in the midst of those most difficult situations, God picks us up and refreshes us and renews us and allows us to begin again. And he works in our life to bring good out of that which is sad and grievous and disturbing and awful and unfair. In Romans chapter 9, the next chapter on, Paul again returns to that wonderful theme of the sovereignty of God. And he uses an illustration of the potter and the potter's wheel. And most of us, I think, at one time or another have either seen pictures or watched a documentary on television or perhaps we've seen a potter at work. And he'll stand beside the potter's wheel and he'll start a pumping action with his foot. And of course, the wheel gets quicker and quicker and quicker. The potter will scoop up solid yet soft piece of clay and he'll put it in the very center of the wheel, the wheel head. And he'll add some water. Then he begins with his hands to shape, bring pressure to bear, and fashion and craft that piece of clay. Sometimes he'll pull the clay out in order to make a fruit bowl. Other times he'll push it up the way and he will knead the clay and he'll bring pressure to bear to create a vase. And other times, a drinking goblet. Whole variety of things, plates and cups. And in ancient Rome, the people that Paul were writing to, there would be a potter in every other street making useful everyday vessels. When the potter comes across a piece of clay, has an imperfection in there, it's blemished and spoiled, he doesn't discard it and throw it on the ground. He keeps working it. He keeps manipulating it. He keeps fashioning it and crafting it and shaping it into the very thing he desires. And as he brings the imperfections to the top, what does he do? He trims them off and then throws the imperfection away. And he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going. In all things, God works for good. As he shapes and fashions your life. And he does so in order to do what? Well, the passage tells us this. In order that we can conform to be the very likeness of Christ himself. And when the difficult days come, and you are heartbroken, and all of your hopes and dreams come to nothing, that's when he's still at work, shaping, crafting, then taking you, his original intent, and putting you into what? Into the potter's killing, and he closes the door, and he turns up the heat. Because when the heat is applied, the thing then 
becomes what it was originally intended to be. Then it becomes useful. Then we become useful in the glory and wonder and grace of God as he continues to fashion and shape us and create us to be more Christ-like. And that's why Paul can write, and we know that in all things God works for good. And if this morning you're saying, Richard, this is a lot for me to take in, I didn't honestly come this morning expecting the providence of God and the wonderful deep theological truths of his omniscience. Well, take a deep breath because the next few passages are on foreknowledge and predestination and they're coming. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And then he writes, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he then called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Now, for some decades, from my earliest years at Bible college and then on into seminary and postgraduate work and doctrinal thesis, I have suspected for a long time that the Apostle Paul is a Presbyterian. I'm fairly convinced of it, and it's right here in Romans chapter 8 where he lays out predestination in all of its wonder and glory. And sometimes people will say to me, Richard, why do Presbyterians make a big deal over predestination and God's sovereign choice and election? And I say, the frozen chosen needs something to hold on to. And we hold on to predestination and we make it a big thing because God himself has made it a big thing. And in essence, predestination is this. That before the foundation of the world, God set his love and affection upon his children. And then he called them into being. And then he so worked in their lives that he brought them under the sound of the gospel. And then he reached out and touched their hearts and souls and awakened them spiritually in order that they would be receptive to the sound of the gospel when he called them. And it began when he lavished his love upon us because he foreknew us and loved us and then predestined us to come to know him. And he so orchestrated and engineered our lives that we would come face to face with the living God. And then and through the gospel of Christ, he called us to himself and he brought us to that point of confession and commitment, of repentance and belief, and he enabled us to come to know him. That's predestination. That's the gospel in its essence. And Paul writes, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. And you may well be saying, Richard, I think I've got it. 
I appreciate it. I didn't quite see it that way before, and thank you. But I'm a practical kind of Christian. Tomorrow morning I will be back at work, and Tuesday morning I'll be up early, and I've got my children to look after, and my mortgage to pay, and all of the pressures of holding down a job, and paying utilities, and car payments, and all of that. How is it possible that this in any way, shape, or form will help me in my daily Christian life? It seems these are great, intense, magnificent, spectacular, far-reaching, profound biblical truths. But I live in the real world. I'm not a pastor. I have a real job. Thank you, choir. <laughs> I need something I can apply day by day. If that's you this morning, come to verse 35 of the passage before us. And what does it say? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Who shall separate us from such things? And the young church at the heart of the Roman Empire, living in the imperial city, were needing Paul to pastor them. They were needing him to encourage them. They had clearly been in contact with them and he knew a little about their life there in Rome and he knew that they were average everyday kind of people who needed to purchase clothes and food, nakedness and famine that from time to time they'd be thought odd and come under persecution and they needed God to do what? To remind them of this cardinal truth and this is what Paul has been leading up to in all of these verses so far. That he is sufficient for your every need. Every need. Paying the utilities, finding work, raising your family, living the Christian life, growing in your faith. He takes us from the sublime doctrinal truths of the gospel and he draws a line directly into our everyday lives and says what? No one and nothing and no power can separate us from the love of Christ. And when you understand that, and when you leave here this morning rejoicing, understanding that God takes this vessel that he has shaped and created and fashioned and holds it up and says, they are mine and I love them with an eternal everlasting love and here are we thinking of ourselves as shapeless lumps of clay and he says the very opposite and neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor any power or principality in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus that's why Romans chapter 8 is the plateau where we sit down and we immerse ourselves in its wonders and its joy and the majesty and grace and profundity of his love. And we can rest in it and place our confidence there. And he tells us again, 
In these things we are more than conquerors. And this morning, allow me please to close with this thought. That if you are saying, Richard, I long to be exposed to his love and grace again. Where do I see it? At its fullness. Where do I see it in all of its intensity? Where do I see it manifest the most? Is it when he is spectacularly answering my prayers? Is it when he takes the disappointments and the hearts and the pains of my life and he brings comfort and encouragement? Is it there? Is that what I see as love? No. Is it when he's continuing to shape my life and create me and fashion me, shape me to be more Christ-like? Is that where I see the intensity of his love? No. We see the love of God, the greatest manifestation of his grace and love, is at this table when we are reminded again that he took his body and broke it for us and his blood was shed for us. And if you had been there that Good Friday when he hung on the cross for our sin and Peter and James and John and Andrew and the others were there, they would look to the cross and say, how is it possible that God is in this? How could that be possible? It's not even remotely possible that this is the will and purpose of God. And yet, we know that in all things God works for the good of those whom he loves and have called according to his purpose. That's why Romans 8 is one of the great chapters of the scripture. And that's why this morning we reminded ourselves after communion of these words. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the crowns on thy brow. And if ever I love thee, my Jesus, it's now. Go home rejoicing this morning that you belong to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your eternal love and grace settled upon us before the foundation of the world. And we as your children have this incredible privilege of experiencing for ourselves the unfolding eternal redemptive purposes of your love. Father, help us this week to live in the light of them, to rest in them, and have our utter trust and confidence in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
To purchase a DVD of today's message, please send a check or money order for $10 to First Presbyterian Church and include today's program number. For more information, call 864-672-1846 or visit our website at firstpresgreenville.org. First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville invites you to Holy Week services Thursday, April 17th at 7.30 p.m. for a communion service and Easter Sunday at 8, 9.30, 10.45, and 11 a.m. 